You're listening to Perspectives in Perryville. Today, my guest is Vicky Cornish, a fibre artist and teacher from Newcastle, New South Wales. Vicky creates contemporary textiles with ancient tools and techniques. Her craft practice focuses on hand spinning, weaving and stitching using natural fibres and low impact methods of processing and dyeing. Vicky also has a particular interest in historical tools and techniques, including those used by Vikings over a thousand years ago. In this episode, we explore Vicky's studies in visual arts, applied fashion design and technology. We also find out more about a range of fibre craft practices and techniques used by Vicky in her own art practice, as well as by participants in hands-on workshops. Vicky also shares her enthusiasm for the simple yet profound human benefits of gentle focus and patience associated with the slow craft movement. Due to the visual nature of Fibercraft, you might like to check out some images while listening to this episode. Vicky's website is bonsaiwoman.com.au B-O-N-S-A-I-W-O-M-A-N where you can find images of the spinning and stitching tools and techniques that are discussed. Here's my conversation with Vicky Cornish. Hi, Vicky. It's very nice to connect with you in these uh, physical distancing, social distancing times. It's unprecedented, so it's, it's really great to um, continue with recording these sort of, this podcast via the internet. Yes, it would have been lovely to have sat down and had a coffee with you. That would have been beautiful. But obviously, at the moment, we have to find other ways. And I do think it's lovely that we can use technology to see one another because I think it would have been so much more difficult to be going through this experience if we couldn't you know, use technologies like this to, to physically see one another. Well, that's I right. that's been helpful, yeah. I've also got, um, I'm on a desktop computer and I've got your Instagram account on one of my in a browser looking so I guess it's because there's an element of what you do that's very visual but we'll get into more of that in a short moment but for Mm -hmm. the moment Mm -hmm. um, I want to know where what you're about like where did you um, were you always interested in kind of um, I guess what's the generic term fiber arts is that fiber art yes well, I guess for me, the the seed was probably planted when I was about 14 years old and we went on a family holiday up to a relative's sheep station, which was west of Longreach. And I learned to spin. I learned to take a raw fleece, unwashed and greasy, and learned to turn it into yarn. And I I found that experience so exciting that I think it stayed with me. And I think that planted the seeds for what Bonsai Woman has become now. So what um, were you, like after that incident, did you, I guess you took some wool home with you? you I did. did I did. And I also, uh, I bought a spinning wheel and it came in about a million pieces. It was like an Ikea nightmare flat pack. And my dad helped me put it all together and I continued spinning. And I still have that, that original spinning wheel from the 1980s down in a studio where, at the moment. Mm. Where do you, like that's, that's a, is it, are they expensive? I guess it, it seems like it's an unexpected type of thing to purchase. Like it's where do you, a spinning uh, wheel, I, yeah. 
A spinning wheel, yeah, there are actually companies that, that make them and we're very lucky here in Australia because just over the ditch in New Zealand are some of the best and most well-known um, makers of textiles tools like spinning wheels and carters and things for people that work with fibre. And so I, that was purchased from Ashford and I can't, to be honest, I can't remember if I bought it, how I came to buy it. I, but I, you were obviously... You wanted one. You kind of it resonated with you, and you wanted to get your hands on on a spinning Absolutely. wheel. Absolutely, yes, I did. I wanted to continue with it because I, I enjoyed it so much that I did. I did want to continue with it, so that's why I yeah I, I made the purchase and put it all together and continued spinning off and on over the years. Um, I'm 47 now, so that's a long time that that spinning wheel's been hanging around in my life. So then what were you, did you continue on? Like were you doing, uh, like did that link up with stuff that you were doing, say, in art or craft at school or not really? Or Not, not really with what was going on at school, but I did, after I finished school I went and did uh, a Bachelor of Visual Arts. Um, so I, I studied fine art and I majored in photography, but I did also do some fibre art while I was there too and I experimented with dyeing the yarn that I was spinning using natural dyes. So, again, a little seed was planted there for what I do today too. I think I, I, I remember doing uh, some dyeing at, using some mulberries from the neighbour's tree. Oh, uh, yes. I, I dyed some calico. And um, mm-hmm. so what sort of dyes, what sort of things did you use to dye your yarn? Uh, you can use there are so many different plants that you can use one one famous incident that comes to mind when I was at at uni was that I used seaweed and I got these wonderful colors from seaweed but the stench was unbelievable I think they hated me in the fiber art department at that that time (laughs) but yes you can use all manner of plants what and then so I guess it was it a three-year course for you how long did your study go on for yeah it was a three-year bachelor degree and um I, I finished up with a major in photography in the end and then what did you end up doing after you after graduation well like a lot of people my age I graduated in the middle of a recession with a fine art degree so of course I went and did admin didn't I <laughs> you've got to pay <laughs> the right. rent somehow <laughs> so. well, there wasn't a there wasn't a great deal of uh, money available for people to, there, there wasn't a need in the community for your skills oh look I, I think also I, sometimes it also comes down to the confidence and the right time in your life for things to happen as well and at that time I was just really focused on earning an income paying the rent moving ahead with my life and even though I continued practicing art it was really just something I did for myself and I didn't um, really pursue paid work through through that it was only later in life after I'd had my son that I decided I, I really don't want to just make rich men richer anymore doing admin I'd like to get back into my creative work and that's when I went to to TAFE and I studied fashion design and textiles and through those studies I was able to combine everything that I learned in in fine art with everything that I now knew with textiles and I started to envisage a more creative business for myself. Initially, the idea was to actually start a label. The whole bonsai woman thing is a bit of a pun on the fact that I'm I'm very short, as you would know, Mark. So vertically challenged, bon- yes. Vertically challenged, indeed. So 
Bonsai Woman was going to be a size six label for women of my own stature because once you're you're a middle aged woman, if you're a size six, it's pretty undignified to have to shop in in the children's department. You might find. Mm. So I was designing clothes that would fit me for women like myself. But after finishing doing textiles. I realised that that wasn't really my strength. My strength wasn't in designing clothing. My strengths lay elsewhere and that's when Bonsai Woman started to morph into more of a a fibre art and craft-based business. So how were you able to articulate? Like did you just sit down one day and think, oh, where are, what are my skills or, you know, or was it something that was a bit of a slow build? was a bit of a slow build in that I had all these ideas for for this fashion label but as I started working on them I sort of hit a bit of a block and I realized that I was really struggling to create what I wanted to create I it didn't it wasn't coming naturally it didn't feel good I wasn't happy with the stuff that I was making and I think I just had to be really honest about myself about where my strengths and weaknesses lay rather than having this fixed idea and be so determined that you just push on ahead and then, you know, potentially it ends up badly. I just thought, okay, if that's not my strengths, where are my strengths? And all the while while this was happening, my craft work was building, you know, I was getting back into the spinning and I discovered weaving. And I think discovering weaving was really the catalyst for me thinking, actually, maybe this is where I should be going not, you know, in that more fashion direction. Mm. And so I can only imagine all these skills and all these kind of strengths have led, as as you're kind of outlined, to what you're doing at the moment. Um, We'll find out a little bit more about what you're doing um, at the moment, but I just want to uh, find out a little bit more about, I guess, the kind of, well... I guess we've all got to pay the bills, you know, in terms of yes. doing admin work, et cetera. And I guess it's good that you had that realisation. But, I mean, what, what's, what options are available? I mean, even right now, the people in the art sector are kind of, you know, they're in free fall in terms of having to reinvent themselves and adapt to really quite brutal conditions. Yes, that's very true. I, I found... Um as I've been developing Bonsai Woman, there have been a couple of key things for me that have helped me um, build it up or start to build it up. It's still a bit embryonic, I guess. But um, one of them has been having the confidence to put myself out there because I think if people know about you, they will approach you, they will think of you when opportunities come up. So having the confidence to do that, starting up the Instagram account has made a massive difference for me because I've got the skills in photography to make the Instagram account look good. I found I've been approached by people to be involved in things and I've been given opportunities just through my work being known on Instagram. And I also think that, and maybe this is true of every industry, I don't know, but certainly in the arts, you kind of need someone to give you a break as well too. That's what I found. Like uh, Maitland Regional Art Gallery decided to stop my work a few years ago and that has been a wonderful collaboration that continues to this day. And I didn't have my work stocked anywhere else. I approached them. They liked what I did. They gave me a chance and I've, I've taken that chance and run with it. So I think every now and then there will be just a key opportunity and you've just got to take that opportunity and run with it. And that's certainly what's happened for me. Another opportunity was when um, 
a lady asked me to run a workshop and I'd never run a workshop before in my life. And I took a deep breath and I said, yes, I'll run that workshop for you. And it was fantastic. And I love teaching. It was something that I discovered that I loved, that I had no idea that I would love. And it's become... I like the sound of that. That sounds great. (laughs) And and it's really become a core part now of what I do. And in terms of earning an income in the arts, it's a great way of supplementing your income. So you can combine it with commission work, selling work online, um, putting up courses online and teaching face-to-face. So it's those sorts of things that can help pay the bills for you. Mm. So I guess you kind of, your typical week... I know we're in, you know, unprecedented times. Yeah, it's a weird week now, right isn't now. it? <laughs> but yeah. just like maybe two months ago, what, yes. what, what would your typical week have been made up of just mm-hmm. in terms of your activities? Yeah, at the moment I'm working on a commission for a gallery. So each I sort of have a, I have a plan so that I can make sure that I can achieve, achieve all the outcomes that I need to in relation to that. So I planned out my work. It can be a little bit weather dependent sometimes if I've got stuff that needs to dry out in the sun or if I need uh, certain dye materials. But in the morning I'll usually start doing some dyeing. I will also be doing some spinning and possibly some weaving depending on where I'm at in the project. I'll also probably do some planning around workshops that I'm running and admin work. So I try to break oh, it up. Lucky, because lucky you've what? got the experience with that. Ah, yes, indeed. I do my own accounts, so there you go. It has come in handy. But I, I, what I really try to do is I try to break up my day and do a lot of different things because this is something that's not talked about a lot in, in the arts and crafts world, but we can often really put our bodies on the line because what we do can, is physical and it can be really repetitive. And I had a bad incident last year where I ended up with RSI in my elbow from weaving and I had to stop work completely for a few weeks. So I'm really conscious now of rotating my tasks around the day so that I'm breaking them up and, and doing lots of different things over the one day so I'm not putting my body on the line. And I, I want to be able to keep doing this for many, many years to come, so I need to be conscious of that. So I really like you said a bit a few minutes ago about the idea that you you were using stuff that you'd learnt in your first degree and then you yeah. you built on that with your TAFE. What were some of the key things from your TAFE like time at TAFE with fashion that you're mm. kind of having folded into what you're doing now? I think a really key thing is the the information that I learnt about fibres, to be honest, because we had to study the properties of fibres and I think a lot of people don't know a lot about the fibres that they wear and they use and they work with. So that was, that's was that been a really key thing. Also how to design garments, how to um, quality control as well, I'd have to say. Um, because you need to be able to test garments for how they, you know, how they're going to wear. And I think sometimes you, you need to be really conscious of that to make sure that what you're designing is going to be fit for purpose. You know, that's something that as an artist, we don't really think about that. We're just creating something because we want to create it. We don't think about whether it's going to be fit for purpose. And when you cross over to create things that are going to have a purpose in the world, you need to be really aware of that. I don't want to sell something that's going to fall apart, you know. Or, or not work the way it's intended to work. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. 
So I am interested to know what what sort of tools and techniques and approaches that you actually do, what do you actually do in terms of working with these materials? Mm-hmm. One of my passions is to take a fleece, a raw fleece, and process it, spin it, and then weave it to create a finished product. And I love to use really simple tools, if I can, in order to do that, because I think there is a perception that in order to create something beautiful or complex, it needs to be a really complicated process with lots of expensive equipment and so forth. But that's really not the case at all. I I love a a spinning tool, which is called a spindle, and I'm holding one in my hand at the moment. Okay. Now, I can see that. Oh, sorry, I've cut you off. Yes, you you tell us what you were going to tell us. I was going to say that, you know, for people who don't know what a spindle is, because I think a lot of people are familiar with what a a spinning wheel generally looks like because they've seen pictures in, you know, storybooks and so forth. But a spindle is an incredibly simple tool. It's essentially just a weighted stick. So you've got a tapered stick and at one point on that stick there will be a weight or even just a thickening of the stick. And the purpose of that weight is to alter the physics of the spindle so that when I spin it, it just keeps spinning. So instead of just spinning and stopping, it just continues to spin, which means for every flick of my spindle, I get a bit more bang for my buck and I can can spin longer on it. Now I would recommend, oh, sorry, I'll just... just, um, Cut in there. I would recommend yep. if for people listening, if you should have Googled spindle by now, or maybe <laughs> look at some of the um, some of the links that we're going to provide in the show notes, because it is a, a reasonably fi- a visual kind of phenomenon. Because uh, it True. is it is amazing. It's so simple. In physics, you call that simple harmonic motion. It's a kind uh-huh. of it's a thing. But mm. yes, tell us more about that. What we're looking yeah, at, what, so- what you're doing. Yes. So I draft the fibre and allow that fibre to twist around the spindle and that adds the twist to the fibre, which then turns the fibre into yarn. So it's a very simple process. But I think what, what a lot of people aren't aware of is that this is how this is how fabric, this is how um, yarn was made for thousands upon thousands of years before a spinning wheel was ever invented. So just, just to kind of back up a, a little bit, when you mm. use the term fleece, you're meaning like yes. wool from a sheep? Or yeah, where, where when I'm talking about, yeah, fleece is, is, is the wool directly as it comes off the sheep unprocessed. So that's once you've, once you've shorn the sheep, you've got fleece. Or a goat. And then that fleece. Or a goat or an alpaca, alpaca or a llama, you know. Yeah. And then what, I guess you kind of, they grade it and they get the kind of fine, finer quality and then, That's right. And then what happens, I guess? And then what happens? Well, for me, if I, I buy my, my fleece directly from farmers because I like to work from the raw product. So I've got a couple of farmers that I purchase from here in the Hunter Valley and I'll go out and visit them and we'll talk about the fleeces and I'll purchase them. And then I wash them generally, particularly if it's a woolen, if it's a sheep's wool, I will wash it because it's full of oils and lanolin and so forth and they're very sticky. And then the next process, there's a couple of different tools that I can use depending on the type of yarn that I want to create. I can use carders or combs or a drum carder, or I can even just leave the fleece as the raw locks and spin directly from the raw locks for a really textured fibre, a really textured yarn, sorry. So it depends on what effect I'm after. I might also choose to dye the the fibre once I've uh, washed it or I might choose to leave it in its natural coloured state, depending on what I'm working on. 
So what does the actual spindle do that it, you can't really achieve just with your hands? Like it's, it must, mm -hmm. have a, must have a kind of purpose that's very yes. specific, I guess. What is it actually well, it adds doing? The twist. To the, the twist, yeah. okay. It, it adds the twist. So you can just twist yarn. I mean, you can just twist fibre in your hand and create yarn. But as you can see, that's a very, very slow process. Yeah. Whereas once I get my spindle to start adding the twist for me, I can just flick it. Uh, and right. that adds and that's where that, the twist really quickly. Keeps turning. Yeah. Oh, right. So okay. It, yeah. It, it, it moves so quickly that the, it's like you're just twisting, 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 and then it's just all kind of catches on itself. That's right. And that's how you create the yarn by letting it, by flicking it and allowing that twist to enter the fibre. And then you create the yarn. And that's really how all spinning tools work. It doesn't matter how complicated or how simple the spinning tool is. The, the tool itself is just generating the twist that goes into the fibre that then leads to yarn because yarn is basically just twisted fibre. Hmm. And, mm. then, and then what happens? Then what do you, you've okay. got, like, do you, would you spend, like, weeks and weeks and weeks just getting all these, uh, I don't know, what, you, what do you call them, balls of <laughs> yarn? Or, uh, and then... Um, yeah, it depends what I'm going, what the, what the final project is for that yarn. I actually spin yarn and I just sell the hand-spun yarn. I have weavers around the world who like to buy my yarn. So some yarns I will spin specifically just to sell to weavers around the world. Other yarns I spin so that I can then weave them myself into items. So once I have spun the yarn, I'll then wash it just to set the twist and allow the yarn to sort of, it, it does what we call bloom. So it sort of puffs up a little bit. And once I've washed it and dried it, then it's ready to be, uh, to be woven. And so... What then, if you, I've got, then what happened? Then what happened? Then what, what happens? Then what happens? Wanna, <laughs> what's a typical, can you talk us through a, a, maybe something that you're working on at the moment that is kind of, you, you kind of have to plan for and then you think, oh, this yeah. much, this much um, kind of, what did you call it, fleece? And then this fleece, much yeah. generating this much yarn and then yeah. what, what, what other equipment or what steps are kind of to follow? Yeah, sure. I'll, the, the commission that I'm working on at the moment involves some large um, hangings. They're going to be, uh, they're going to hang, drop about four metres. So they're really, really big hangings, wall hangings. So initially I um, purchased the fleece directly from um, a farmer in Mount Vincent in the Hunter Valley. And I, I got a little bit overexcited when I was out there because he had so many beautiful fleeces that I've got half a house full of fleece now. So I'll probably purchase well more than I need. But I will go through at least one full fleece for this project. So once I've brought it home, I've washed it, then I'm, I'm starting to look at warping up what we call. So I, I, for this project, I've used a very, very simple loom called a rigid heddle um, okay, well, and it just basically a simple it, loom what's a, a loom? simple loom yes yeah, so the the loom is the uh the tool that you use in order to weave and oh, a loom okay, can be right. yeah and so a loom can be as simple as this and i'm just holding up a little oh, piece of cardboard oh, that i've cut I some remember slits that. on <laughs> From my yeah. primary school days, yes. Exactly. Well, you can weave on one of those. And so a rigid heddle is really just uh, a slightly more complicated version of this. Like okay, your old can you cardboard just, loom. 
Yeah, can you talk us through, like it's cardboard, but what's what? Mm. just describe how you've created okay. that cardboard as a starting I've point, cut, just simply. Yeah, I've cut little slits in the top and bottom of the cardboard loom, of a, of a piece of cardboard, and then I've actually attached pieces, uh, sorry, a length of linen yarn, which is what we call the warp. So the, the yarn that goes down, the full length of our fabric is called the warp, and the yarn that goes across and is woven in and out of those warp yarns is called the weft. So very, that, very that, and that is the basic, yeah, that is the basic principle of all weaving. You've got a warp, you've got a weft, and the weft is going in and out of your warp. And then there's all sorts of patterns and things that can lead on from there, but that is the basics of weaving. So the rigid heddle just allows me to weave great big long lengths of, of fabric and it will keep these warps at an evenly spaced distance as I'm, as I'm weaving them. So that would be the next step as I put my linen warp onto my loom and then I actually draw up a little template because I'm, I'm weaving a particular shape. So I'll draw up a little template and then I, I'm actually sort of jumping between my spinning wheel and my loom for this project because I've dyed all this yarn and I jump on the spinning wheel and I weave up, sorry, I spin up a bit of my yarn, then I jump on the loom and I weave a bit of it in and then I think, oh, I might just want to add a little bit more of a certain colour. So I'll jump back on the spinning wheel, I'll spin a little bit more yarn with the colours that I want, then I'll take that yarn jump back onto the loom and keep weaving. So it's sort of I'm jumping between the two tools. Yeah, and it's great. It's a really great way of working. And I can do that because this item is never going to be washed or worn or anything, so it doesn't really matter if the yarn, um, I don't need to worry about the yarn being able to withstand laundering or anything like that. So I've got a lot of freedom in how I create this piece. Whereas if I'm creating an item to be worn, I have to think a lot more about, you know, making sure it's fit for purpose. But this is, there's a lot of freedom in doing this kind of weaving at the moment. And then what's the, is the whole piece uh, like designed around a theme or something? Or is it like what, like, yeah, tell us more about that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm hesitant to tell too much because I'm making oh, it for a gallery yeah. and it's on commission oh, and I don't know what I'm allowed oh, no. to say. No, just, <laughs> just forget <laughs> that question. We will not continue. I've forgotten that. But, yes, I will say... I, Yes, I will say there is a theme around it and uh, I will say that it, it, it's the winter installation. So the theme has been, you know, around winter and the colours of winter and the textures of winter. Yeah, I, I really like that idea that you've kind of go in and do a little bit and then you have an inkling and then you go back and uh, yeah. adjust and then you could feed that back in. It's kind of, it's almost like freeform creative process or something, you know, which yeah, is, which, which I, must be highly enjoyable, I would imagine. It or I, is. I would it experience in my own way, but for you. Mm, mm, yeah, and I, I don't normally work like this. This has sort of been a new way that, that seems to be right for this project and I'm absolutely loving it. So I think that maybe this will lead on to some more projects where I work like this as well. Yeah, okay. I think without going into too much detail, I kind of, I've just got a little bit of maybe a, a little loose thread possibly. Um, but the, <laughs> the, the, the link from the spindle <laughs> back to the spinning wheel, all of a sudden the spinning wheel became relevant again. And I mm. thought, oh, hang on, 
what's is that a refining of the yarn or something or what mm. what what where does the spinning wheel come in as distinct from the spindle as the spindle yeah um, depending on um, the purpose for the final yarn I, sometimes I will use a spindle, sometimes I will use the spinning wheel. In the case of this commission piece, I'm spinning quite a lot of yarn. The spinning wheel is faster, there's no doubt about that. It is faster to produce yarn on that wheel. Um, it also depends on the effect I'm trying to get because there are certain garments that I'll produce using spindle spun yarn because there's a certain quality to the spindle spun yarn that you I don't think that you can get on a wheel. And to be perfectly honest too, sometimes it's just about what I feel like using, you know. I love to use spindles and sometimes I just want to sit and spin on a spindle because of the special qualities that that has, the special sort of meditative qualities of spinning on a spindle. I think sometimes I'm just called to use that rather than the wheel for certain projects. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Now, in this territory, I've often heard that slow or fast is not always better. What does that mean? Fast is not always better. Yes, I absolutely agree with that. And we've seen that happen with with the slow food movement. And now I believe we're seeing that we're seeing it with fashion, slow fashion and slow craft. And I think people are understanding that creating something quickly, not caring so much about what you're creating, mass producing it so that there's a lot of waste and a lot of pollution, that's not necessarily the best way forward. And certainly in spinning, spinning forces you to slow down. And, and I think all crafts force you to slow down because if you try and rush them, you will make mistakes. And in the case of stitching, which I also do, you're working with very sharp tools. So you could even injure yourself if you don't pay attention to what you're doing. And so I think that crafts have a wonderful way of forcing us to centre ourselves, forcing us to concentrate, to focus and in so doing, we slow down and and there's a beautiful flow that you can sometimes get in your work when you just slow down and enjoy the process of it, even enjoy the process more than the finished pro- the finished product. That's, that's um, yeah, I really like that as well because that taps into some learning and teaching kind of, um, well, philosophies and practices where the, the process is actually just as important, if not more important, whereas than, than the outcome. Yes. Um, whereas in, in our world generally, it's kind of the outcome seems to be it. So otherwise, why bother yes. type yes. thing? Yes, I do often have people... Sorry, I often have people ask me, why would you bother spinning on a spindle when it's slower than spinning on a wheel? But it's not necessarily about churning out as much as I can, as quickly as I can. You know, if, if I did that, if, if that's what it was all about, I'd just go and purchase yarn. I wouldn't make it myself. But in using a spindle... Oh, now, come on, let's, let's not be like that. <laughs> Thank you. You're not going to just put... Oh, we might as well just buy it. <laughs> well, you won't be able to buy the yarn that I make, though. Because of the process, it is unique. Every single skein is unique. And, and I think that's... That's the beauty of a handmade product and that's certainly the beauty of um, spindle-spun yarn particularly, I think. What was that word you used, every single...? Skein. A skein of yarn. What's that? A skein is when we... um, 
when we spin something, we'll have it on a bobbin or like I've got mine stored on a spindle here. There are so many key oh. terms in what you're talking about. Every single one of them, like a piece oh, of equipment or a I technique. Know. And <laughs> people that are involved in, in fibre crafts will probably know a lot of what these terms are. But when we yeah. wind yarn off our bobbin or off our spindle, we create what's called a skein, which is just like a big circle of yarn. And by doing that, we can easily wash it and check it and we can mm. even hang it under tension so that if we need to sort of straighten it out a bit. So that's that's how all yarn is produced as a skein before it's wound into balls. It's also easier to measure as mm. well once it's in a, in a skein. Mm. So uh, what I was going to ask is for those people that don't know what that necessarily means, the slow move, food mm. movement, the slow blah, 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 could you just d describe what, what that even mm. is? I think it's, for me, particularly with craft, it's about rediscovering um, old crafts. It's about taking something and creating it from scratch and doing it intentionally and doing a one stitch at a time, enjoying the fact that it's going to take a long time, accepting that and enjoying that and relishing that and using that as an opportunity to, um, I guess, relax and focus. It's almost like using it as a, a moving meditation and it's also about thinking consciously about where our products are coming from, how our products are made, under what sort of circumstances our products are made and making conscious decisions and choices about that. So when it comes to textiles, it's about what are the fibres that this product was made from, what um, are the conditions under which the workers were working, how, how can I reduce my waste in this process, how can I use as little water as possible, how can I sit quietly and create something and think about all those steps in the process and enjoy all those steps and take as much care and time as I can with those steps rather than just rushing through to have an end product. So I guess the, this sort of philosophy or this approach, this is, um, you know, this filters through your Instagram account, but then do you also incorporate this type of approach into when you're teaching a class for example or running a workshop yes I, I i try to as much as i can and one of the reasons why i love to to teach people this stuff is because my hope is that by going through this process people will start to look at their textiles differently and it will inspire them to maybe step back from that whole fast fashion and start thinking and, re and valuing our textiles again because I think that's the problem. We don't value our textiles like we used to. So when I teach, particularly when I teach things like um, sashiko, which is a type of Japanese embroidery that I teach, it very much comes from a tradition of reusing and recycling old fabrics and valuing as a precious commodity every piece of fabric. So I talk a lot about that and a lot about that's, that's the tradition that this craft is coming from and I think there is a very strong message for us in that today and the same with spinning when you learn about how fibers work I think that you you don't ever look at textiles the same way again you know I mean if you've ever sort of been involved in working with a raw fleece I don't think that you ever sort of look at your textiles in the same way and I think that's really important because we're very divorced from that process now and I think it's easy to not value something if you're divorced from that process 
you, uh, just back to your Instagram mm-hmm. account for for the moment. Uh, congratulations, by the way. You, ha- you had a significant milestone just recently. I did. Uh, 4,000 followers, which yes. is quite a, quite a big number. I know. I'm surprised myself that that many people are interested in what I do. But there you go. I think, um, I think it's great that people are interested in ancient crafts as well too and reviving ancient crafts. Yeah, they all, what's the kind of demographic or what are they really, what are, are they interested in different types of things that you're about or you bring? I do, I seem to have um, different groups that kind of follow me on Instagram. So there's people that are really into the sashiko, into the Japanese embroidery that I do. Um, They tend to be a slightly younger group. Then I have I have Viking reenactors that love the the nail binding and the spindle spinning. I have quite a lot of Scandinavian. Every uh, <laughs> every minute is a new key term ah, that I've not ever heard of. <laughs> Viking. That's an intriguing aspect of Viking reenactors. Yes. But I mean, what is what is nail binding and how does it relate to? Vikings. Yeah, nail binding is actually the ancient precursor to knitting. So it's what human beings did before they discovered knitting or invented knitting. So it just uses a needle, a, um, a long needle a often needle. made of wood, a nail. That's right, N-A-A-L. A nail oh. is where oh. nail binding comes from. Right. So you're binding with a needle, hence nail binding. And you you knit lengths of yarn rather than off a continuous ball. So it's a it's a very very slow way of producing textiles. It's probably the ultimate slow craft, I think. And um, Viking reenactors are interested in it because the Vikings wore nail bound mittens and socks and hats. So if you if you're a reenactor that wants to be really authentic, you will learn to nail bind your own garments. So hence the interest there. I love it because it's a, it's a fascinating ancient craft. I love the texture of the fabric that it creates. And I, um, I really believe in trying to create contemporary textiles with it, even though it's, it's wonderful to see all these reenactors keeping the craft alive. I really think that to truly keep a craft alive, you need to make contemporary items with it as well too so that it continues to move forward and doesn't just remain a museum piece. Yeah, I really like the combination of this totally ancient, you know, technology like mm. the spindle and mm. the nail, nail binding, but then it's all kind of brought to people via Instagram. Yes, yes. <laughs> so it's like, wow, there you go. And even just in choosing the the fibres that you use, the colours that you use, the objects that you make, you can give it a new sort of contemporary twist as well too and which makes people think, oh, oh, that's actually pretty cool. It's not just this this quirky thing that belongs in a museum. Yeah, it's like a, a live again type Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. It's the difference between preserving a craft and keeping it alive, I think. I think those two are actually different things. Yeah. And then are you participants or you know the people that follow you or even workshop participants how do they respond to when you all this sort of slow movement or you know they're kind of taking all this time is there a discomfort with with anyone and you know typically Mm. or you know I, I'd actually say the opposite. I think one of the reasons why they come to me is because they're yearning for it. They're looking for ways that they can find a little bit more quiet in their lives and in their minds. So often that's why they're taking up these kinds of crafts. So I think 
I think it's it's really interesting that these crafts seem to be taking off again because I think to me it indicates that that people are looking for that balance that seems to have been lost and they see this as a potential way of finding that balance again. Hmm. Yeah, like I, I remember reading a few weeks ago about sourdough. There's all mm. these people around the world, even just mm. in lockdown, yes. that have rediscovered sourdough. That's right. So. And baking. Apparently baking's going through the roof yeah. as well too. It's wonderful. I think it's yes. great. Yeah, so I guess you've got something for your trouble when you kind of, like it's an activity that will certainly help one focus one's mind mm. but then you're actually producing something or yeah. you're, you're developing a skill that type of thing yeah that's right I've also had people um, use it consciously to manage anxiety as well too I've had some students come to me looking for something to help them manage their anxiety specifically so particularly stitching has become quite well known there's a whole slow stitching movement and that's become well known as a way of of helping you manage, you know, your mental health, which I think is, is a wonderful way of doing it. And they create stitching diaries and so forth. So you're just stitching for the pleasure of stitching and for the benefits that it gives you rather than even having an end product. Mm. What, what, uh, what would go into a stitching diary? Um, it's kind of, I guess, free-form embroidery, you would almost call it, where people sit every day, they consciously set aside some time every day to just sit and stitch on a piece of fabric and that piece of fabric grows and grows like the pages of a diary. So it's kind of a diary and stitches. Mm. And then I guess somebody in the future might look at that and yeah. would, I guess they'll be able to read it or, you know, Ooh, interpret perhaps. it or... <laughs> Or you may choose to, evidence. yeah, you may choose to make something out of it in the end. You might choose to, you know, make it into a, a quilt or a hanging or something in the end. So what, um, in terms of exactly where we are right now, like obviously people aren't moving about as much and, you know, but you're still continuing on with your commission. Yeah. I mean, what, what will the next sort of short while bring? Like you're kind of, are you going to be you won't be able to hold face-to-face -face workshops as much, I would imagine. No, which is a great shame because, um, I, you know, much as I love learning and connecting with people online, I find that spinning is one of those things where people will often say to me, I just want someone to sit with me and show me. You know, I get that a lot. I get that a lot with um, with nail binding. You know, I'll, I'll say to someone who wants to learn nail binding from me, did you watch this video? Did you see this Swedish video or this Finnish video? And they'll say to me, yeah, yeah, I saw those, but I just want someone to sit with me and show me. So it's a real shame that um, at the moment I'm not able to do that. I find that some things are really difficult to instruct online. So I'm still thinking about what sort of online resources I can create for people. I will probably also use this time to start up a blog as well and attach that to my website. I've got another product as well that's in development at the moment, which is um, the Mind Spinner, which is the main image that you see as you go into my website. There's that beautiful... I'm going to have a look. Yeah. There's a Mind Spinner. It's Hang the on. first image that you see when you go into my website. And it's oh, a yes. beautiful, I incredibly simple spinning tool. Wood. Yeah, it's actually made out of recycled timber. So a friend oh, yeah. of mine in Singleton is making the first order of them. And hopefully within the next few months, I'll be starting to sell them online. 
And I think that will be a wonderful thing, a simple spinning tool. I've got uh, an instruction booklet that goes with it and I'm looking at creating some online resources that go with it so that people can maybe use this time to learn a slow craft. One of the reasons why I love to use these ancient tools is because of the connection that they give me with the past. I feel like every single time I flick a spindle, I'm making that connection with every human being on the planet who has been involved in creating textiles and there's something almost magical about that and I feel that I am I am a link passing on that that knowledge and that skill and I and I think that that's a really important link. The other thing that I love about spindles is that it's an incredibly simple tool and yet every sail on every viking ship Every piece of linen wrapped around every Egyptian mummy started with somebody making yarn on a spindle just like the one that I'm holding in my hand right now. In this episode, I chatted with Vicky Cornish, a fibre artist and teacher. You can find more information about this episode, including links to Vicky's website and other social media, in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.